Perhaps the most challenging piece of looking forward into the future is to see ourselves. How will we change our thinking? How will we change our bodies, our biology? How will we change these things given that we now have the ability to shape ourselves from gene editing to altering our neuropharmacology? How will we alter ourselves and how will we make the decisions about what should be altered? And what will our ethics look like in regard to human life? Burning desire. Big ideas. Bold action. So I'm so excited to introduce you guys to Juan Enrique. Uh, Juan is a life sciences VC, an entrepreneur, and more broadly speaking, he's a futurist who examines today's society, its issues and trends in terms of the emerging future. Uh, Juan's book, Evolving Ourselves, Redesigning the Future of Humanity, One Gene at a Time, is a human-centered book that looks at how humans have begun to participate in the evolutionary process. We're evolving our evolution by changing our own biology. Uh, this book is a really fundamentally important book to read because it gives you some insight into how fast the technology is, in, is evolving and how much of an impact that actually has on our own biology. His most recent release is called Right Wrong, How Technology Transforms Our Ethics. And it looks at the accelerating rate of change in our ethics and how our ethics might be seen by our descendants. How might our grandchildren look at the choices we make, the choices we're making today? Uh, Juan's work begs us to open our eyes to the neobiological revolution and consider our choices wisely, both in terms of the raw impact and in terms of future-based ethical considerations. Juan Enrique, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much. I, I am very, very curious about how you got started on this book, Right and Wrong. I mean, after doing your, your, your first book on, on uh, you know, the kind of biology revolution, where did you find yourself and when did this notion of, of examining ethics first come up for you? So I grew up in Mexico and I was exposed to um, what happens when a country's ethics begin to fail mm -hmm. and violence and corruption and the rest of the stuff. Um, so it's been in my mind for a long time. And then decades ago, when I started getting involved in genomics, when it was just starting, um, we started putting the building blocks in place to read and write with life code. So in the same way as you write a sentence in English, you can now write a sentence in proteins or in DNA. And that allows you to redesign every life form on this planet. And that has one or two ethical implications. And then a few years ago, I started shifting into the brain and brain research and synthetic neurobiology. And that allows us to build little brains in dishes. It allows us to map thoughts, read thoughts, alter thoughts. And that too has one or two ethical implications. And so I thought about ethics for a long time. And then I thought I should probably write some of this down. Yeah, ethics doesn't seem to be really popular. Uh, you know, you don't just see it on Netflix top 10 list any day. Um, and, and I think there's some, and I just want to just kind of make this clear for our, our, our listeners that, that there's, you know, the notion of studying ethics is not like a, a right or wrong thing in the sense that, you know, there's a moral, moral, morality to it that's fixed or, or fast. And I think in your book, you really do a great job of, getting us prepared for the fact that ethics itself changes depends on depending on the time and the circumstances. And, um, you know, 
you said there's one or two issues with being able to make little brains and dishes or being able to completely change our our biology. Uh, I'd like to go into those a little bit later, but but, you know, like, how do you see ethics as a functional conversation for people? How can they get into this without without having their kind of old morality version of things? Or maybe like this is a philosophical area of study I don't understand. So, you know, a lot of us are conditioned to think ethics is incredibly boring because probably the most single boring, most boring document on earth is the human relations manual that they give you when you go to a company or when you go to school and it tells you everything you already know, right? And if you don't know it, then you probably shouldn't be studying or working with these nice people because this is stuff written by Captain Obvious. So, you know, don't harass people, treat people well, don't steal, all that stuff, right? I mean, we got that in first grade. The part that we don't get and the part where ethics becomes absolutely fascinating is what happens if right and wrong changes over time? What happens if it shifts 180 degrees and you thought this was right and then the exact opposite is what's right? What happens if a lot of that is driven by technology? So technology changes our notion of right and wrong. And what happens during a time when technology is accelerating? Does that mean that our notion of right and wrong is going to change faster and faster, and a lot of us are going to end up on the wrong side of history. That's where ethics gets interesting. Yeah, you mentioned in your book um, uh, about slavery that that before the Industrial Revolution, slavery was okay, and then certainly after the Industrial Revolution, we have less need for manpower. That suddenly the the it switches, and, and we start having abolition rising up, and then the Great Great Britain and the United States abolishing slavery. Um, you know, are there other examples like that in in contemporary times that you're seeing where where we are about to have some kind of flip in our our view on what's ethical and what's not? There's a lot of them, and and I think it's really important not just to recognize the very brave abolitionists who put their lives on the line mm-hmm. and really opened a lot of our eyes, um, but I think it's also important to understand that slavery was around for tens of thousands of years. And it was around in every civilization, the Greeks, the Romans, the Chinese, the Indians, the Incas, the Mayas, everybody had slaves for tens of thousands of years and people tolerated that. And so the question is, why did it go away in such a short period of time as a legal entity in most countries? And that had a lot to do with the fact that a single barrel of oil contains 10 years of human labor. And so when you start using energy, when you start using thousands of horsepower, technology enabled us to not have to oppress tens of thousands of people as we dumped for millennia. What happens with a whole series of things today like um, oil? We've been using oil and we've been you know, damaging the planet, et cetera, et cetera. But it's been very difficult to have that kind of energy in a way that is clean until very recently. And now what you've got is you've got this curve where the price of solar is collapsing, the price of wind is collapsing, the price of geothermal is collapsing. As soon as it crosses the price of coal, it doesn't make sense to use coal. And soon thereafter, it's going to cross the price of oil for most things. Mm -hmm. 
And eventually it's going to cross the price of gas. And in retrospect, what's going to happen in 10 years is people having faster, cheaper, better energy are going to say, how dare you people have burned hydrocarbons? And it's going to seem like a savage thing to have done. In the same way as it looks crazy to us that people used to burn whale oil or used to heat all of their houses with basically open fires. Um, there's a lot of things that technology makes faster, better, cheaper that allows us to have a better life while being more conscious of our environment or other people. I think synthetic meats is a second example. A synthetic burger was a quarter million bucks not that long ago, 2013. It was, you know, 30 bucks, 2015. It was seven bucks last week at Whole Foods. And in the measure that you get meat that's faster, better, cheaper, and cruelty-free, in retrospect, the notion that we would kill six billion animals a year is going to look pretty savage. But then again, we don't have that option today. So most of us are not yet vegan. Most of us are not vegetarian because the alternative is very difficult for a lot of people. Fast forward that 10 years. In 10 years, if you remain carnivorous, um, it's going to be a harder and harder position to defend. It's interesting because when, you, when we think of ethics, we think about, well, how do I make the right choice between two things? And what you're pointing out is that, that a lot of that is what is context dependent. It's easy for me to ignore something that might not ethically feel completely wrong. I mean, I'm not going to defend, you know, killing all those animals. Like, like it's not something I think is defensible, yet I will still continue to eat meat. Um, so it's not a, it's, there's like, there's not a, if you're like an ethical crux point for me at this point in my life in eating meat, we all eat meat. That's it's an industry, et cetera, et cetera. We have these ways of rationalizing these things. I guess you're saying until we don't have a way to rationalize it, once it drops below, below that, that, that price point or the, what do you say, better, better cheaper, faster, right? Um, until we have a clear alternative, yeah. that's a better alternative. Now that, that seems then we're, as human beings, we're pretty convenient about our ethics. What's most convenient for me is what I'm going to find to be ethically tolerable. Yeah, people, you know, we've done some pretty awful things across time. We used to sacrifice thousands and thousands of people across the tops of pyramids and rip their hearts out because we thought if we didn't do that, the sun wouldn't rise, the rain wouldn't come. And then technology taught us, no, it's not necessary to do that. We used to execute people with guillotines and show the heads to the people in the squares of Paris. And today we look at that and say, who, who are these savages? And the issue with this stuff is it's accelerating. So you're brought up by your grandparents, you're brought up by your parents in the right way for the time, and then the rules change. Hmm. And, and boy, does that discombobulate people. I mean, look, I was brought up to be a little bigot in Mexico because I went to Jesuit school for an hour every morning for all of grammar school. The mass was in Latin. The priest never faced you. But if there was one lesson, it's you don't want to be gay, right? I mean, it was very clear. The teacher, the preacher, your peers, the laws, your parents, society, the government, everybody told you this is the worst thing you can possibly be. And it's now flipped from, you know, about 2019 
two thirds of the U.S. was against gay marriage. Today, two thirds is four. And if you're a shop owner or somebody who was brought up as I was in Mexico and you didn't change your mind, people boycott you, people call you a bigot, people do this, that, the other. And by the way, they're right, right? We should not discriminate against people who are gay anymore. We should discriminate against people who are left-handed, which by the way, we used to do. That's right. So the rules change. And if you're not educated in a, in a way that you keep learning, if you don't have an open mind about, hmm, maybe I was wrong about that. You can end up on the wrong side of history faster and faster. Yeah. And then, of course, as you mentioned in your book, history is something that's permanent now. I think you said like you likened the, your digital uh, uh, trail of data like to like tattoos. Like they, they're, they're permanent. Um, and certainly cancel culture has gotten a hold of that. And, and you know, some of these, um, these kind of realities that we're confronting, con- being confronted with, um, you know, all of our data is held forever. It's like, we're, we're going to be responsible for the ethics of our decisions in a decade of things that maybe don't even appear to be ethical issues right now. So you have to be able to hold two conflicting theories in your mind. The first theory is if you were, if you wore blackface or you had jokes about Polish or you were, you know, saying stupid things about people who were gay, 30 years ago, each of those things was absolutely wrong. Each of those things, as we see it today, and as we should have seen it then is wrong and unethical. However, I would judge things in a very different context if you did them today with the knowledge you have and the context we have, than if it occurred 20 or 30 years ago. And and the problem in a lot of what we do is We take things that we know are wrong, and they are wrong, Mm -hmm. but we judge them with the harshness of today. And we too are going to be judged in the future. And and there's a question as to whether people in the future are going to have a little bit more humility and forgiveness than we do. Because if they don't, as the rules change faster and faster, because technology changes faster and faster, boy, are we going to be judged harshly. Yeah. Well, and I think kind of becoming aware of that, and certainly a point you, you make in right wrong, becoming aware of the fact that we may be judged by standards that aren't present today is one thing. But something you just said is really, really key for me, and that is that um, that that the things that we might have done in the past that we got away with were still wrong. They were still, uh, uh, you know, ethically not right. And and what it it says to me is that uh, at some point maybe we ought to actually consider what we're doing in terms of ethics. Maybe we should actually take a, a moment, a pause or a breath and actually consider our own ethical approach to things in life. And But that's not done very much. I think we just kind of absorb our ethics by TV or by social media, by, by cues in the world around us versus by some kind of uh, thoughtful process. The first and most important thing you've got to do is, is you've got to understand that even if you are, you know, a enlightened um, millennial, or if you're a God-fearing conservative, whatever the hell, the stuff you were taught was right and wrong can change. And, and if you don't believe it can change, then you're not open to this conversation. 
If, yeah. if you start with the premise, I'm right. And if you don't agree with me, you're wrong. And I'm right. And I will always be right. You're going to end up in some really deep water, yeah. right? Because the rules keep changing. And, and, and that's the part that is so difficult for people to understand because most people in this polarized times think that half over there disagrees with me. And therefore that half over there are baby killers or they're pedophiles or they are uh, Neanderthals or they're racists or whatever label you want to put on. And, and if you don't start from the premise, look, 98% of people are decent human beings. They may have a different opinion, a very different opinion from what you and I believe, hmm. but they're trying to do the right thing for their kids. They're trying to do the right thing for their parents. They're trying to be respected by their peers. They're trying to do their job decently. Hmm. If you don't start with that, then it's very easy to characterize people as the other. And, and those who can make you commit, believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities, as Voltaire said. And, and we're in a period where we're believing a lot of things about a lot of other people that allows us to hate them. And that's a very dangerous place to sit. Yeah. And, and I think what you're just saying is that, hey, at the, at the heart of these culture wars that we're all been um, enduring, some people are participating, some people are standing on the sidelines, sideline, some people are trying to say, hey, stop, stop, stop. But it, 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 you know, inside of that is is people who are willing to kind of fan the flames of worldviews and competing worldviews, um, all of which uh, kind of under are underpinned on these kinds of, of of strong ethical statements or declarations. You know, uh, to cut down a tree is is wrong. To uh, you know, to not protect unborn children is wrong. There's some very 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 strong declarations on that. And I think what your work is saying is, hold on a minute, take a look. History will, will tell us all something about these strong ethical de declarations we're making and that maybe we should give some deeper thinking and consideration to them, especially when it comes to our, our fellow humans who are struggling with the same things we are. As, as you look at that, uh, do you see any way out of this? I mean, like I think you've, you've painted a portrait of, of some of the, the struggle we're facing, but is there anything that, that people, um, anything that we can do right now in regards to today are ethical quandaries in, in these kind of larger, broader culture wars, someplace we might look at least. So I define myself as an optimistic curmudgeon. So I can see a whole lot of stuff that is really awful. And boy, some of the things we've lived over the last few years have really been unprecedented in my lifetime. Hmm. However, having said that, I keep asking myself, all these groups that feel put upon, that feel like they're being discriminated against, that feel like they're being hurt. Um, you know, would you really have wanted to be born at random in the 1950s or the 1900s if you were a woman? Would you have been treated better if you were somebody who was Hispanic or African-American? If you were somebody who was gay? Um, you know. It's not clear to me that going back in time, you do that much better. And, and stuff which we took for granted as to how you treat people in the 1950s and 1900, completely different today. 
right? And and it's it's really important to look at what's missing. But to quote that awful cigarette ad uh, from the 1960s, you, you've come a long way, baby. And by the way, that's a slogan which you couldn't possibly use today, right? I mean, you look at the marketing today and the standards and what you can say and how it's interpreted have also completely shifted. And, and this is from companies that weren't trying to insult you. They, they were trying to get a broad group of people to say, okay, but going back and looking at those marketing slogans and going back and looking at those pitches gives you a sense of how what looked progressive back then looks absolutely backwards today. And, and it should give us pause as to the language you use because the word of the, the words we use, their meaning may completely change. The context in which we use them may be considered really backward in a few decades. And by the way, that's a really good thing because you want people to get better at treating people better. And, and I guess the thing which scares me the most is when you're so busy judging the past and the errors of the past and judging the present, you don't always look at the possibilities of the future. And I'll give you one specific example of something that all of us should be thinking about. For almost all of history, economics was based on scarcity. There wasn't enough food. How are we going to allocate it? There wasn't enough bicycles, pencils, medicine, energy, housing, whatever the hell you want. We have this period where we are living in an excess of almost everything. There are more than enough calories to feed everybody in the world. It's more than easy to get everybody antibiotics vitamins, basic medicines, basic education. And then the question becomes, why don't we do it? Why do we allow 48 people to own basically what the bottom half of humanity owns? And in what universe do we think it's okay to let somebody starve when you can fix it? In what universe do we think it's okay for somebody not to get basic antibiotics and vitamins if we have the ability to do it? And, and that's a real question for our time. It's not just judging the founding fathers. Yeah. So let's let's make a switch now. Let's talk about the future a little bit. In in you know the you, as you mentioned, the, we have this accelerating rate of change, and a lot of that's technologically driven. Um, that means that that decisions we're making about what technologies to 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 adopt, um, what what privacy standards to hold on to, what capacity or access people might have to basic healthcare or our good food, um, you know, nutritious food, clean water, clean air. A lot of the, the, the quality of life of the future, which may not even be that distant, you know, 10, 25, 50 years from now is really going to be impacted by the decisions we're making today. How do we begin to determine, like, how do we think about ethics in that term? Like, how do we begin to talk about maybe some larger agreement just on ethical standards for our descendants and, and how we might keep them in mind as we make these, these large decisions that are going to really, really broadly impact the quality of their life? Well, you have to tear it by 
what are the most important things that you have to address? Hmm. And to my mind, the, the biggest ethical fights today should be over things like nuclear weapons. It's something that we think about less and less. It's something that you know people used to obsess about in the 60s and 70s. But you're in a period where more and more people are getting knowledge and more and more people have the ability to proliferate nuclear weapons. And the whole notion of mutual assured destruction doesn't work when you put it in the hands of fanatics because they think they're better off if they die. Hmm. And so when you get the rise of non-state actors, when you get the rise of fanatical actors, the, the whole traditional architecture of nuclear quote unquote stability doesn't, it falls apart. And so let's think of two alternative futures 50 years out. One is you don't stop this and you do get nuclear wars. And look, one nuke could really ruin your whole day. So it's actually something we should be addressing. The second option is you actually do address it and you denuclearize the weapons part. In retrospect, the notion that we would allow seven people the ability to single-handedly destroy the world. Let me say that again. Seven people, the notion that they can single-handedly destroy the world and that we thought, well, that's just the way things are and we're not going to fight that, is absolutely mind-bogglingly stupid and insane, right? And, and boy, you'll see that once they go away. This becomes an even more important question as you begin to get weapons of mass destruction in biology hmm. and as you get weapons of mass destruction in cyber. because powers decentralizing and you're giving more and more individuals the power to do enormous damage and you're not creating an ethical system where it's not okay for anybody to do that it's not that the good guys have nukes it's not that the good guys have bio weapons it's that nobody on earth should have this because it is going to lead to a disaster and i would put climate change in that same category I would put wealth concentration and the division between the haves and the have-nots and the desperate migrants and the completely isolated, fanaticized, angry. You cannot allow that in a world where you've got enough for everybody. And somehow you feel because these people don't have the right sheet of paper, because these people don't have the right government, um, they should not be treated as we are treated. They should have different legal rights. They should not have food. That is just wrong. Yeah. Um, yeah, and you, you, know, you mentioned this notion of, of you know, existential threats, uh, biology, AI, weaponized AI is another one, and that, that those domains. Obviously, these are areas um, that most people don't have any kind of consideration for. Like we don't consider like, hey, I have something to say about nuclear waste. Now, you know, if you're older, maybe you you protested, um, you know, the use of nuclear, both in for energy production and for 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 weapons at one point. Um, and so people, there are people around that remember doing that. But, you know, most of the people that are younger, at least right now, have no notion that they should be talking to their governments about, hey, you should get your your yourself uh, arranged on this. And there's a there's a point I want to make here that. 
I don't think many of us are looking at. I think especially since we've kind of had unfettered capitalism for quite some time, at least the past 20 to, to 30 years, uh, we've had this unfettered version of capitalism. And, and that is this notion that, hey, maybe governments should play a role in defining some ethical standards for the collective. And, uh, you know, obviously we have a really low trust in government these days too. How do we begin to, to like make some rules or some conditions that can help us? Uh, is it governmental? Is there, is there some other approach that we can do to have some uh, ability to put guardrails, if you will, on some of these, these really, really, um, uh, scary technologies that, that we've invented. And as you said, that we're democratizing, giving easier and easier access to greater and greater amounts of power. And, and what's very scary is because it's just the way things are, even though we know in the back of our minds it's wrong, we allow it. And, and by the way, we've done that across history. I mean, it's not that the Greeks didn't know that slaves suffered. It's the, you know, that's the way things are. That's the natural order of things. And I, I think the, the, the really the stuff that will come back to bite you the hardest is the stuff you take for granted today. The stuff that you say, you know, that's just the way things are. And boy, if they continue that way, it ain't going to end well. And if they don't continue that way, they're going to look back at us and say, why didn't you act? Right, Grandpa, what were you doing against this? Grandma, why didn't you do something about it? And, and even more important, when I was a young child, Grandpa and Grandma, you never told me this was a problem. Why? Because it'll seem so obvious in retrospect, right? Um, and, and it's, and, and again, let me come back. Ethics is incredibly important because if we don't think about them as an active living system, we'll have the ability to stop stuff, but we won't. And, and that's where, it, you know, we truly commit horrible acts. I get a lot more upset with people who should have known better, who had the ability to make it better, and who didn't, than with people who didn't realize the had options and had a choice it that doesn't justify their actions in the past that doesn't mean what they did was right but it does mean that on an ethical scale boy if you go out and you discriminate against somebody who's got a different sexual orientation today or you go out and you practice slavery today or you go out and you practice racial discrimination today you're doing something when you absolutely should have known better. And the standards applied to judging you should be, at the very least, harsher than those practiced 100 years ago. Not because the action is any less bad, but because ethically you had options and you should have known. Yeah. Um, so big, big topic there. Just for our listeners, a little, little put a pin in this thing, you know, like understand that there are are threats to human existence today. And we've num enumerated a number of one of number of them, uh, and not only just existential threats. There's the you know the threat of starvation, or no access to clean drinking water, or no clean no sanitation for uh, you know a billion people on the planet. 
um, you know, no ability to have have sanitary conditions, just clean. Um, and um, you know, and now with climate change, uh, atmospheric changes, and weather changes are threatening threatening people across the globe. Even wealthy countries are not sheltered from these things. Um, we have uh, an imperative right now to be heard about these things and to you know start movements, join movements, uh, support political candidates if you if you can uh, that that will that will make uh, laws that will help to regulate things. And we really need to um, uh, move forward on kind of globally determining things that are right and wrong. Uh, weaponized AI, weaponized, uh, uh, you know, new biology techniques really should just be wrong. I mean, we should just say, look, that's that's a really, really bad idea to get really, really good at killing people in those ways. Um, so, uh, you know, I think, I think Juan would agree with me that it's time for us to do something about it now and have a say about it now. Don't wait until history is going to judge us uh, unfairly. Uh, I want to dig in a little bit more into your work with uh, new biology and 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 the and the things you've been doing in that department because you you have have uh, deep deep expertise that most of us don't have access to. You have access to uh, the researchers and scientists that are actually right on the edge of inventing new uh, technologies and new ways to impact our own biology. I want to ease into that just a little bit. For well, what are some of the big ethical considerations that you're doing in your work and and the people that you've been funding through your VC firm and and the people that are in the kind of the, at the edge of those things? What are some of the things that that are ethical conversations in that world? in terms of what should we change, what shouldn't we change, and why should we change it? Let me talk a little bit about why this is such a different period. Um, you know, the human genome is only about two decades in terms of our knowledge of it. And the first genome cost about three billion bucks to sequence. And you can now get it done for about a hundred bucks. So our knowledge has just absolutely exploded. And, and what it means is, each of your cells contains a library that's your entire genome. So you've got about 6.4 billion letters in each of your cells. That's the book of your life, of your body. And if you think of it in terms of teeth, you're born with no teeth and your mother is very grateful. And then you grow a set of teeth and then you get into the tooth fairy. And then you regrow a set of teeth. But if you lose that second set of teeth, they don't regrow unless if you become a shark or a lawyer, right? Only sharks and lawyers have extra teeth. But think about that story for one second. What it means is your body has a complete instruction set for how to grow teeth twice. And it has a complete instruction set for how to grow two kidneys, for how to grow two arms, for how to grow a stomach. So in the measure that we understand how this book is written and how it is expressed, we should be able in the next two decades and maybe the next decade to be able to read that well enough that you can regrow almost any body part you have. We will be able to regrow our livers, our kidneys, our eyes in the same way as we grow our bones when we break them or we regrow our skin when we get sunburned. Because the instruction set is in each of your cells. That leads to a whole series of questions because our bodies become almost like houses. You swap out the fridge, you swap out the windows, you add a room, you redo the basement. Well, 
do you want to make an exact copy of that body part? Do you want to modify that body part in some way? How, what is allowable? What is not allowed? And, and you know, there's one or two ethical questions in that. And then the part where it gets really complicated is when you get to the brain. Because even if you were able to regrow your brain, it doesn't really help you unless if you can download the memories. But if you can download the memories, can you only download your memories or could you download somebody else's? Could you edit memories? And boy, that one gets really interesting. And that's part of what led me to write this book, to, to begin to think about these questions and address these questions of right and wrong. And also to understand that what the choices my kids make or my grandkids make may look horrifying to me, but to them it'll look normal and natural. And to put that in context, imagine having a conversation with your grandparents about sex. So bring your grandparents in a time machine. They're 21 years old. The four of them are sitting in front of you, and you're going to talk about birds and the bees. They probably knew a lot about sex because they were probably married. What they didn't hear about is you can consistently have sex and not have a child. Because birth control you know, back in the 1950s was available, but wasn't very effective. You can have a child without being, touching the person, being in the same room, or being in the same country through IVF. And they'd look at you like Google-eyed. They'd go like, that was the immaculate conception, and you're now practicing immaculate conception? Are you kidding me? And then you talk to them about freezing eggs, freezing sperm, and having surrogate mothers. And what that does is it separates sex from time. So all of a sudden, you could have identical twins born 30 years apart. So you decouple sex from consequence, you decouple sex from physical contact, and you decouple sex from time. And we take that for granted. Now play that forward. Your 60 or 70-year-old grandkids bring you back, and they tell you about reproduction and sex. Do you think it's going to look anything like what it looks like today? Do you think the things they take for granted are going to be things that are going to seem, oh, yeah, of course. No, we're going to be absolutely gobsmacked by how fast that technology has moved, what it enables them to do, and why they would choose to do it. Yeah, that's, that begs me to it kind of opened up a thought for me is that, you know, we we and I think uh, Martin Heidegger said this quite well in in his book on technology is that we have this illusion that we are inventing and controlling technology, but Heidegger said we're technology we're, we're instrumentalized ourselves by our technology. We are a component of the technology just as much as anything else. We are yet another tool inside of this this technological world. Um, and then what what you just said is that it seems normal to us. We normalize whatever level of technological development we're inside of. And those for those of us who were part of the invention of the internet and all those things, it, I even for me, I have a hard time imagining what it was like before I had my, my smartphone or before I, I mean, I, I started off in computer science, so I actually was programming on green CRT terminals. I know it, it's in my memories, but I have a really hard time relating to not having 
the level of technology that I have today is, is a normal thing, even though it's actually in, in terms of years and even in terms of my life, a very new thing. Um, we are, our, our world is evolving around us and we're evolving inside of it. And it's, it's inseparable in a way. And, and yet we have to stop and ask ourselves these deeper questions. Um, not like we're going to, and from what I hear from you, not like one, we're going to come up with a definitive answer, but it's a conversation well worth having. No, and that's why you have to be willing to listen to people who have different opinions than you do. And that's why you need to approach this topic with a little bit of humility. Because if you start from the viewpoint, I know right from wrong, and if you disagree, you're wrong. You're just not going to listen to people and, and why they might have a viewpoint that's different on this stuff as this stuff changes. It's, it's, it's a really, you know, it sounds easy. It's a very hard thing to do because in these times when you're forced into one trench or the other, you're in favor of this or you're in favor of that you're pro this person or you're pro that person. It's very easy to eliminate the complexity of saying, you know, that person over there, even though the label that applies to that person is a label that I disagree with, that is a decent human being that I would trust. A very quick way of making that real is assume you have a 14-year-old beautiful daughter and you have to leave for the weekend and you only have two choices of babysitter. You can leave her with Donald Trump for the weekend or you can leave her with Barack Obama. And then what you want to do is you want to flip it and say, okay, so would you rather leave her with Paul Ryan or with Anthony Weiner? Right. And, and the answer is they're good people. And they're bad people on both sides, sides. of the labels. Yeah. Right. And, and in fact, there's not two sides to label. There's a damn kaleidoscope of stuff, which we've bracketed and allows ourselves to stereotype so that it's us versus them. Mm. And, and when you polarize a society like that, what you're doing is you're putting the United States at risk. You're, you're, you're threatening to make it the untied states in the same way as you're watching that debate take place in Scotland, in Wallonia, in Corsica, in Northern Italy, in Southern Finland, in Kyrgyzstan, and a whole series of countries, it's very easy to rip a society apart. It's much harder to say, boy, I don't understand how that person can hold this viewpoint. I don't agree with this person, but that person may have some other things that may be worth listening to. That's hard. Yeah. Um, okay. For, for a minute here, do me a favor and take us out 50 years and in your work and human biology, what are some things that we, not things to avoid, like these are ethical pitfalls, but what are some things that we should certainly be doing in evolving our biology? So I don't think people have a clue how radically we're gonna alter the human body over the next 50 years. Because I think within 50 years, we will have colonized at least Mars and the moon. And when you take a single cell 
that's fertilized and you, and you have a cascade that turns it into 10 trillion cells, which is your body. That has always been done in a certain gravity. What happens if you alter that gravity? Are you going to get the same embryonal development? If you put it in the gravity of the moon or the gravity of Mars, can you have children on the moon or Mars? Would plants grow in the same way? If you were to travel longer distances, the radiation levels would absolutely destroy you. Your decalcification would destroy you. And you can't wait for natural selection to pick the one in 10 or 50 or 100 million who's actually going to survive and have mutant genes to thrive on Mars or the moon. So you're going to have to practice some pretty deliberate engineering that's going to be pretty radical engineering to enable us to become a multiplanetary civilization. And that is not going to be natural selection or random mutation. And, and so I don't think people understand how radically evolution is going to be directed and changed as this occurs. Yeah, so you're talking about having the ability to be able to survive in high radiation environments or be able to grow and develop in different, uh, in different gravities. These are, these, are, these are really radical things. And, and the human beings that would you know, have these genetic alterations would not be fit for living on the planet Earth the way we are today they would they would be aliens <laughs> they would be extraterrestrial at least yeah and, and take something which i think is a lot faster and a lot closer we're now at a stage where we can bring animals to term in the equivalent of what look like little ziploc bags mm -hmm. so you can put you know a mouse fertilized mouse inside there yeah. and it'll grow into a full mouse and out comes a live mouse and you've done the same thing with um, sheep. So you can now take a sheep, stick it inside this plastic bag. It looks pretty gross. And, you know, out comes a live sheep, leading to one of the greatest tabloid uh, headlines I've ever seen in one of the British tabloids. These, you know, these tiny sheep are called ewes, E-W-E. Um, and it, it says, you get a room <laughs> over a very gross picture. But even that simple technology is something that fundamentally changes debates. And, and let me give you a couple of examples. It is probably something that will be used for humans in the next decade. And the reason you use it for humans is it will probably be a lot safer to bring a baby to term inside a synthetic womb that has the mother's, um, you know, the various chemicals the mother provides and, and nutrients that the mother provides in a synthetic form than it would be inside one of these plastic heated boxes, right? Probably a lot less invasive, probably a lot safer. And so the original use for this thing is going to be to save preemies. Mm -hmm. But boy, does it change a bunch of stuff because all of a sudden, if you can do that, you, you can bring babies to term far, far earlier. And that's going to polarize part of the abortion debate mm -hmm. as to when an embryo is viable.
it may also polarize notions like, gee, mom, how dare you have taken me traveling when you got sick with Zika in X instead of leaving me protected outside your womb inside a nice, safe incubator facility. Hmm. Or once I was outside your womb, it became a lot easier to intervene in an embryo. Hmm. How dare you have not operated on my spina bifida? Hmm. How dare you have not altered my genes? Because today we look at gene engineering and we say to people, you know, I would never want to engineer a baby. That is against what I believe. But for your grandchildren, they may have a conversation that says, you know, my grandparents and my parents were so damn backward that they didn't bother to take out the KRAS gene. They didn't bother to take out the P53. They didn't bother to take out the BRCA. And so I've now got cancer because these backward idiots didn't edit my genome. Didn't care enough. Yeah. And, and, and you flip the conversation 180 degrees in a very strange way with a technology that to us seems pretty gross and weird. Yeah, and I, it, it really opens kind of in a science fiction-y way. It's like, oh, well, we could actually not have anybody give, have, you know, have children in their wombs anymore. That there could be these facilities of Ziploc bags where children are are uh, gestated and it also just brings you know like and i think we've been wrestling with this a little bit a, a, not a lot you know like what is what is a gender's responsibility in being a parent i mean if if suddenly women are no longer tied to pregnancy and 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 birthing and i'm not saying that should happen but if we just imagine from it that's what happens then what does it mean to be a mother or to be a father and how do these roles um how do they, how are how are they going to evolve Obviously, we have our interpretations about what mother or father should be. And, you know, we've gone through these revolutions where now fathers can be stay-at-home fathers. You know, there's this, this fluidity now between, you know, how you, how you, what role you play in the raising of a child. But once you decouple um, gestation and birthing from the reproductive process, then it seems like you end up with a, a very, very, at least a very, very different base setting for what it could be mean to be a mother or a father. Um, and, and maybe even your notion of what's right and what's wrong might change. Who knows? <laughs> well, it just seems, it seems that, you know, from the conversation we've been having, that it's inevitably going to change. We don't really know how it's going to change. And the thing that I think really, um, it like blows my mind is like, okay, where is this coming from? Where is this kind of this technological advancement coming from, and 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 we can begin to predict where it's going to lead us to, or at least what some of the possible scenarios are. And we know really clearly it not only changes our ethics, it changes our story about you know what it means to be a human being or what it means to be part of the human species. We start to live extraterrestrially, then it really changes our our notion of what it means to be a human being. And I can't help but think this is a really really strange and weird journey we're on. Um, and we, we, cause it's not, it's, you know, I think that, you know, like flat earth time, right? The earth was flat. It was just flat. That's all there was to it. You sailed off over that where there be dragons, you go off the edge, you die. And, and for all, you know, like you know, 
thousand years, you know, like however long, and at least in Europe, we had this perception that that's the way the earth was. And then it, it changed when it changed, it radically changed our notions of who we were in regards to the whole universe. And I think we're seeing revolutions like that every decade now. And I'm, I'm you know, I, my, the alarm in my head's going off. Well, is it going to be every two or three years that we're having not just a revolution in technology, but a revolution in the way that we conceive of ourselves in the universe? A, a real radical change of just however we make the concept of being a human being is is showing up really, really, really different, very, very fast. Um, to me, that seems like the most interesting inquiry that we can begin to have is like, what would it, what the experience of being a human being be like 50 years from now? And would it be translatable to, to the software that we have today? And that's why continuously asking, we have the power to do this, what's right and what's wrong. Mm. And being a little bit more humble about understanding that that can change mm. is so important. Well, with that, I think we'll bring this conversation to a close. Uh, this is a really powerful conversation. I wanna encourage all of our listeners to, to get, get Juan's newest book, Right and Wrong. Uh, it's a, it's a, I said to, to Juan when we first started talking today, that it's a, a real kind of personal read. It doesn't read like a textbook or anything like that. It, it really feels like you're sitting down and having a chat with Juan. Uh, he takes you through a, a number of really, really pertinent issues today, things that you're, con you're, you're dealing with today and gives you just a new set of, um, viewpoints or tools to, to be able to look at those. And I think by the time you finish the book, you'll have a different appreciation for ethics and maybe, uh, uh, maybe a little bit looser grasp on right and wrong. Not meaning that you don't still believe in right and wrong or conduct yourself by a certain set of ethics, but you may not be as fixated on what your idea of right and wrong is, which given our last conversation might be really, really a good preparation for the life that's about to come at you. Um, uh, Juan, thank you so much. First of all, thank you for the work that you're doing, not just, uh, you know, working in, in, you know, the life sciences and the, in the neobiological revolution area, uh, but, but bringing, um, your careful and and uh, meditative thought to the things that you're doing, actually considering them, and then bringing back your considerations for us, the rest of us, to learn something for for. So thank you for that, and then mostly just thank you for the great conversation today. Well, it was great fun. Thank you so so much. Okay, um, we're going to sign off from now. Uh, uh, from Michael Sean Conaway and Boldly Now, we'll see you soon. The Boldly Now Show, igniting the world of burning desire big ideas, and bold action. Boldly Now is an initiative of the Generative Futures Initiative, generating a thriving future for humanity. Learn more at generativefuturesinitiative.com.